So good morning, my name is Jamin, and I am one of the elders here at Christ City, and we're about to dive into God's Word this morning. And when we do that, we're going to be continuing a part of a series called The Path of Jesus. And I guess this is like part two of the series. So the first part was the Beatitudes, and now we're moving into the main meat of the Sermon on the Mount. And we are really excited about this and what Jesus' teachings have to show us. I was, um, I was reading an essay uh, last night from a, an atheist uh, speaking to Christians, uh, Cadmus, an author named Cadmus, and he was saying what we need from Christians is for them to step out of the abstract with what they do and talk about at church and enter into the bloodied face of our current history. That's what Jesus is doing here. So I am really excited, and as a, as a part of our elder board, we are really excited um, to do just that, to step into the details, into the dust and the dirt and the blood of history through Jesus' very real and practical ways for us to be the light of the world. And so... We're going to step into that in just a moment. Let me pray for us, then we'll read uh, the word together. So, Lord, I pray for our hearts. I pray for our eyes, our spiritual eyes, that we would have eyes to see, that our hearts would be open, and that we would not walk away from Jesus' teachings this morning unchanged or unwilling, uh, but instead willing to take what he says and find it happening in our lives. Give us the courage to trust you and not dismiss anything that you have to say. Let us be wise, wise builders building on the rock and the foundation of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray all this, amen. Any of you ever said, hey, it's not like I killed somebody. Anybody ever said that? I know I have. The problem with that statement is, depending on what you did right before that, is Jesus might actually disagree with you. He might actually say, it kind of is like you killed somebody. So, with that, let's stand for the reading of the word. <laughs> We're reading from uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. There are some uh, light blue, sky blue maybe, Bibles on the end of the aisles there, uh, if you want to use one of those. Most people are using their phones these days. Here we go. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this, this passage is all about anger that Jesus is teaching us about here. And as I read some commentaries on this, and then I read some more commentaries, and then I read some more commentaries about this, I, I found something that was, was confusing to me that was sort of speckled throughout several of these commentaries, going all the way back to the second or third century up until the contemporary theologians right now. And that's that many of them looked at this passage and they started immediately arguing for why Jesus would be prohibiting anger. Just saying that anger is totally wrong for a Christian to feel. And I found that really strange. First of all, because that's not what he said. He didn't say you can't be angry. He's talking about a particular type of anger, and he's saying be careful about this type of anger. And then he's offering some solutions or some opportunities that arise out of that anger. And so it was, it was really confusing to me when I saw all of these theologians t trying to do away with anger. I don't think that's what Jesus was intending at all. In fact, we see various times when Jesus shows anger. In all four gospels, there's an account of him clearing the temple with a whip and throwing over tables. Pretty sure it took some anger to do that. I don't think he was doing that all Buddha style, like just, you know, zoned out flipping over tables. He's probably spitting and saying some things actually that we hear and hear. In fact, he called the Pharisees fools more than once or twice. So there's, there's got to be something going on in this passage other than Jesus prohibiting anger. Another time in Mark, it says that when Jesus was about to heal a man or a woman, I think it was a woman, it says that he looked around angrily at the Pharisees who were waiting to see if he was going to heal this, this woman on the Sabbath. So either Jesus is really contradicting himself and he was hoping nobody would remember he did some of those other things, or there's a more nuanced understanding of anger that he's bringing to us here. Uh, I'm going to go for the, the latter on that one. So here's the two things we're going to be discussing as we look at this passage, and uh, they'll be up on the screen, but the dangers of anger as we unpack this passage and the opportunities of anger, that there's dangers in anger, but there's also opportunities in anger. And, and the title of the, the sermon is Don't Get Mad, Get Even. And so that kind of seems weird, but we'll get to it. It'll kind of make sense as we go through there. So. Let's look back at the beginning of this passage as we start to explore what some of the dangers of anger that Jesus is talking about. But before I do that, I just want to repaint the picture that's happening here. 
Uh, Jesus has just given us the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are you who mourn, for you'll be comforted. And blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the, uh, Robin says this a lot from the Simon and Garfunkel, which I've never even listened to them in my life. I don't know anything about them, but the ratted on and the spatted on. And so Jesus is, is blessing all of these people that the world would never say are blessed. And then he goes on to say something even more spectacular than that. He says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Don't hide your light up on a city hill. Don't, don't, it can't be covered when it's up there. So these very common, these very ordinary, these, these lowly people are being told this by Jesus. And you can imagine that they are hanging on his every word at this point, full of hope that everything that the world has told them about their life and their worth and their significance is not true. This is the context in which Jesus begins to lay out his ethics, his ways of living that a Christian should live. So th this is where he starts. He starts with anger. All right, let's go back to the passage. So, verse 21, it says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So Jesus is quoting here from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, he's quoting uh, the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments saying that uh, murder is wrong. Yeah, everybody agree? Yeah, that, that's, murder's not good. But what Jesus is going to be doing throughout these passages is he's calling us to a higher level of conversation. And he is calling us to let our imaginations grow and to be inspired about what does it mean to be human? What is possible? You've been living down here in the muck and the mire, but I'm calling you up into this higher way of being a human being. So he says, you shall not murder. And in verse 22, he's not recanting that, or he's saying, no, it's okay to murder, but he's wanting to inspire us to see more, to say that it's not only that humans are worth so much that we're not going to murder them, but that human beings are worth so much that we even have to be careful about what we do with our anger towards another human. So, he says in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So the, the Old Testament, the Old Testament commandments, they were enforced by the people, by the leaders of the community. There was no other government. There were the leaders of the tribes, there was Moses. And so if somebody broke a commandment, those people would come together and they would pass judgment on that person. And so that's sort of the framework that Jesus is using here. And he's saying that likewise, if you murdered somebody, if you have anger with your brother, you will be liable to this type of judgment. Now, 
Jesus could mean this literally. Let's talk about that for one second. Let's, let's think of Jesus. Jesus meant that literally for a second. You're, you're arguing with somebody or you're talking to somebody you don't like. And you can tell they're getting mad. And then you say, you mad, bro? You know the meme, you mad, bro? And then they're like, no, I'm not mad. Yeah, you were mad. Oh, I got you. I got you. Let's go. Let's go. Bring them before the judge. Does that sound reasonable? No. I don't think he means that literally. I think he's making a point that we're going to start to unpack here. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He's talking about an inner condition that we can't judge externally. And then he goes on. But before that, before he goes on, let's talk about what exactly is meant by this word anger? Because this has everything to do with how we will continue to explore it and unpack it. So if we think about uh, the original language that this text was written in, it was, it was written in ancient Greek. And in ancient Greek, the word anger translates to this word called orgizo. And orgizo has a multitude of interpretations. They all have something to do with anger. Let me, give, let me give some of that definition to you. It's to provoke or enrage, to become exasperated. And also, interestingly enough, movement or agitation of the soul, impulse, desire, any violent emotion, or anger exhibited in punishment, hence used for punishment. So these are, these are some of these definitions and meanings that are inherent in this word anger that Jesus is using here. And so he's saying when you, when you are angry at your brother in this way, when you have contempt, when you're enraged towards your brother, watch out, because you might find that you are indeed liable to judgment. So, he goes on here and he says, in the middle of verse 22, so brother will be liable to judgment, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, which is a higher form of judgment, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. I want to look at those words because the dangers of anger really hinge on how he unpacks these words here. So the first word when he says insults, everybody say insults. Turn to your brother and say, I'm not going to insult you. In English. That's the second part of say that. Say in English. All right. Because the word insult comes from actually we have a Greek word for it, but it really originates, and what Jesus is really literally saying is racha. Can we put that word up on the screen? Racha. It's like this, this guttural thing, and when you, if you were to say it, you'd spit it. You'd say racha at somebody. And yeah, good job, Josh. You're doing really great on that pronunciation. So when you would say that word to somebody, it was like when on a reality TV show, 
a fight breaks out and it's all beeps. Like in your head, fill in those beeps. And that's what racha meant to the people of that day. It was all the worst things you could say. It was a phrase of utter contempt, of deep hate and disregard. And then the next word, you fool, comes from the Greek morose, morose. And the S at the end, if you change that to N, what would that say? Moron, right? So that doesn't sound as bad, but if you think about the context for a Jewish person and you look back in the Old Testament, the fool is the one, for example, in Psalm 14 or Psalm 42 or 52 as well, says the fool is the one who says in his heart there is no God. And he goes about and does all of these terrible things. So when Jesus is talking about these two terms, he's really saying that this is both a person who is racha, meaning an empty-headed fool in the Aramaic, an intellectual moron, somebody who is both absent mentally and morally in his heart. Moron, fool, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, racha, the empty-headed fool. So when you're talking about somebody like this, you do not have a high opinion of them, do you? And who does he say this person is? The, the person who's angry is what? Who? Look at the text. I'm asking you to really actually answer. He's angry at who? What's the title, the, the object of the anger? The brother. Who? Brother. His brother. And he's saying this about his brother. I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but I bet that we've all said things of that kind more likely than not to somebody that we're closer to than as far away from. Sometimes those close to us get the brunt of our contempt and our rage that we find is harbored inside of us. And Jesus says, this is dangerous. How do we get to that point? And is there an inherent opportunity that can come for us if we find ourselves there? Right now, there is a lack of mourning in our nation for the 59 people that were just murdered I'm not saying there isn't any, but I'm saying there is a lack. One of the reasons is through people's fear and rage, they're focusing on something else. And that's what is the title or the label of the person who did it? What do we call him? A lone wolf, a, a terrorist, a domestic terrorist. And people have a lot of hurt around how that person is being labeled. And it's a, it's a really important discussion. It actually has a lot to do with what Jesus is saying right here and what the danger of these labels and these titles do to us as human beings. When you can take a person 
in, and you take that person into your mind and your heart and you say they are worthless both mentally and morally, do you have a person left? This happens with people close to us. It also happens often with people who are not close to us. It happens when we say, yeah, that's how those Democrats are. That's how those Republicans are. That's how those conservative people are. They're just like that. They're just idiots. They just don't get it. Jesus is saying, yeah, that might be normal for the world, but you, you are to be the light of that world. And so I'm going to teach you in the middle of all this stuff how to do it in a different way how to think about it in a different way, how to feel differently about your fellow man. I'm gonna put you on blast about it, but I'm not gonna leave you hanging right there. I'm gonna give you some opportunities to do something about that deep anger and rage welling inside of you. Let's look at this quote by Howard Thurman. He captures this uh, really beautifully. It starts with, if a man's attitude, that's the quote. If a man's attitude is life-negating in his relationships with those to whom he recognizes no moral responsibility, his conduct is without condemnation in his own mind. So he's saying, you can be negative towards the actual life. You can cancel out a person's life in your mind and your heart, AKA murder, when you feel no moral responsibility to that person. And he says in relations with his fellows to whom he recognizes moral responsibility, his attitude is life affirming. But we know where Jesus is going as he gets further into his sermon. He says, hey, don't just love your boys. Don't just love the people that are close to you, the people on the same side of the fence as you, the same color of skin, the same dialect of speaking, the same country, ethnical origin, but love who? Your enemies. He's setting us up. He's already giving us some tools right now to begin to think about this idea because it's, it's, it's common. It's normal in our day. In our low level of spiritual imagination, it is very common to say that person is no longer a person because of what they said, because of what they did, because of how they felt about this topic or this idea. And that leads to no other other, um, eventuality than what? Murder. So, wow. It sounds like Jesus was being really like extreme, really harsh. He's laying down some more laws, which he's not, but he's really just getting to the heart of the matter, isn't he? There's this idea um, that uh, this guy, I don't know what to call him, Robin, Peter Rollins talks about in one of his talks, a, a Christian philosopher maybe, And he talks about how we turn a person into nothing more than a a sacred object. Um, That that person can be an object of fantasy or escape for us or an object of contempt. So that 
all of the undealt with things, all of the rage and fear and anger inside of us, we can now direct it to this thing that becomes a sort of sacred object to us. In fact, a, a, a means of worshiping and meditating on that rage inside of us. If you worship that, those feelings or those lack of feelings, those impaired feelings, Jesus is saying that will get you to the point of murder and death. And it does all the time. So he's saying, yeah, so you haven't murdered somebody yet. But the condition of your heart, how you see your fellow man, how you deal with things that could be right and good inside of you is turning you into, for all intents and purposes, a murderer of your fellow man. My God. Whew. We do this when we refer to somebody as a drug dealer instead of their name, a criminal, an evil politician. When we say that person's just a liar, a hypocrite, a Trump supporter, a Hillary supporter, a libertarian, a crazy liberal, that's the path that we're headed down when we do those things. So what, it, what do we do now? What do we do with this? And what is the source of this? I'll tell you one source. One source of this problem within us, this internal struggle when we feel anger, when we feel that something is wrong, that's a lot about what anger is. It's when you feel like something's wrong, that something was done wrong to you or something is wrong in the world. That's not a bad thing. That's an agitation in your soul. That is a, a prompting to action, a call to arms. A guy uh, named Chip Dodd, any of you ever, ever heard of him, Chip Dodd? A little bit. He said that Jesus was the angriest man that ever lived, meaning he was the most passionate about what was wrong in the world, that he would do anything in order to make it right. Thank God he did. Thank God. So the problem with that, the problem with anger is it shows what we care about. And when we put out in front of people what we care about, when we take out the contents of our heart and we lay it out in the open, that's scary, isn't it? That's vulnerability. When we say to somebody, that really hurt my feelings, that's a dangerous place to be because you know once you've taken those things out and you've put them before somebody, they can do something to you. And so instead, the way of the world, the, the way to survive this place, 
when we're down fighting in the dirt and the mud is pride. Use pride. It didn't bother me. I'm tougher than that. I don't need anyone. I can handle it. No, I'm not mad. That's why. That's why if somebody, if you were really frustrated, irritated, angry about something, and somebody said, you mad, bro? You would just get what? More mad, more angry. Because there's a vulnerability there. And so when we reject our vulnerability and in a sense our powerlessness to be anything but hurt or to care deeply about something, that sets us on this path, this road where we begin to have to worship these prideful, sacred objects instead of just admitting that hurts. This is really sad. I can't actually do anything about this no matter what somebody calls it. It's not going to change right now what happened. It's not that there's never a time and a place for those things, but right now I just hurt and I'm sad and I can't do anything about it. When you can do that, that's where you open up the opportunities that anger has for you. But how can you do this? As Christians, the way for us to be able to do this is to remember exactly what Jesus is saying about us and what he will be saying in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount as we go through it. I don't mean like he's never said it before. I just mean like we're, gonna, we're going through a series, right? Like I said that uh, in a joke one time on a, a thread with Tom, like on Saturday, uh, it, uh, in Easter time, and it was Saturday, and Tom said something about, he is risen. I said, no, he hasn't, Tom, not yet. And Tom, like, responded very seriously, well, what do you mean he hasn't risen? <laughs> I was like, it's Saturday before Easter. He's still in the grave. Like, you know, it's an order and all. Nah, I'll talk to you when I see you. <laughs> but uh, so we're going to get there, and that is the thing. The thing is, we're children of God. We are needy, and God said our neediness, Jesus Christ looked at your poor state, even if you don't feel poor, your poor state, and said, you're blessed, you're my child, you're with me, this is my kingdom, this is my world, you're living in my kingdom. When that goes deep into our hearts, then vulnerability becomes a possibility for us. We don't have to hide and guard our anger because somebody will know what we care about anymore. We can be light. We can do what everybody else is thinking. Everybody else is thinking, I wish I could do this. Jesus is saying the Christian just does it just shows the full glory of the needy human in relationship with God. Just do this. I will be with you if you do it. Get up out of the mud and be the light. So let's look at uh, what he talks about here in the opportunities of anger in this second passage starting in verse 24. There was a part of anger 
a root word of the Greek anger, orga, that I held back earlier. And the term, the root of the Greek word anger comes from this idea, denoting an internal motion, especially that of plants and fruits swelling with juice. That's a different way to think about anger, isn't it? It's the proper usage and channeling of this deep passion. One of the root parts of anger simply says character, a human's character. We know who we are when we know what makes us angry. Jesus was angry about the way the world was going. He was angry about the sins of the world, and so he did something about it. All right, so here we go. Verse 24. Oh, verse 23. Sorry, verse 23. All right, so you're calling people all kind of stuff, and he says, so here's what you do, because your heart's all jacked up. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So he gives us this practical scene for somebody who would have been a, a, a Jewish person who would have worshipped, but really it would have been anybody. Everybody was religious in his day, so everybody had a place of worship and they offered things uh, on altars. And so he's saying you're in the pinnacle of what is supposed to be your relationship with God or the gods. That's the moment that you are in right now. The time when you make propitiation, where you make yourself right with God. And Jesus is saying here, but how could you do that if your relationship with your brother has been severed in, in, in some way? That there's something that you could do, there's something that you could say that could make a relationship with a brother right, that right now is severed, that right now in your hearts, to your friends, you're calling them racha. And so he says, leave. Leave your place of worship in the moment when you realize that and go do that. What does that say about our relationship with God? That says that tantamount to us being right with God is us being the being same, tantamount meaning same, is our relationship with who? My brother. So I come up to Josh and I'm like, are you mad, bro? <laughs> I was just trying to use you mad, bro, again, but in a different tone. But y'all don't get, y'all ain't with me this morning. <laughs> or that wasn't a good enough joke, either way. So, I, I leave. Jesus is saying here, he's giving us some very practical advice. Well, what do I do? I want to be religious. I want to make sure I check the lines. I want to make sure I follow the rules. Again, Jesus is saying the rule's good. Like, not murdering. Very good thing not to do. Better. Out of the dirt. Expand your imagination. This ain't so important if you can't be reconciled to the people in your life. I don't really care if you show up to church every Sunday. 
and you sit quietly and confess your sins to yourself before you take communion. I want you to go out there and reconcile. Do what I spent my life and pained myself to do until the point of death and bring reconciliation to this broken world one person at a time. You can clap. I like clapping. I like amens. I like all that. You don't got to be quiet. This, uh, this theologian, he says, it, he says this. He says, reconciliation is not likely to be something that happens to us as it is uh, to us as it is something we pursue. I'll say that again. I messed it up. Reconciliation is not likely to be something that happens to us as it is something we pursue. This dude in this story that Jesus is showing here in this little mini parable, this, this guy or girl is sitting somewhere outside of the worship service mad, angry. Somebody offended him, hurt his feelings, hurt her feelings, did something, talked about him behind their back. And then that same, the person who did that is in the worship service about to dip their bread in the wine or the juice because maybe they're in recovery. Or maybe they don't like the taste of that wine like me. And they dip it in there and they say, wait, I got to go. And they leave and they run to go say, I know you've been acting funny towards me and I know what it is and I'm sorry. I really cared about this thing. I cared about myself looking good or I cared about this other group looking bad. And so I said something hurtful to you and I want to make it right you might have just stopped a murder right there. Maybe not a murder of one of those two people, but you just destroyed one of those sacred objects that was being worshiped instead of God. And you left worship to do it. That's how important Jesus is saying this is. So he gives us another story. He says, in verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser accuser, while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So here we see an eventuality. It's not quite murder, but it's definitely a negation of life being locked up. But he's saying, if somebody has, has, wants to sue you, so they're coming to you, and you don't like the terms that they're talking about. No, you, you were wrong. No, you were wrong. All right, bet. I'm going to take you to court, right? And you're on the way to court, and you stop, and you say, okay, um, I was being a little prideful. I, like, I could... I can work with, with what you're talking. I understand that you were harmed. Let, let's, try to, let's try to talk about this. Let's try, to, let's try to work this out. Maybe we don't need a third party uh, to force something to happen because I am not willing to stoop low enough to reconcile to you like Christ did for me. So he uses this, this second example again to show, he's saying, he, he's, like, he's not even giving us if you're the one who's mad. He's saying if the other person is mad. That's, that's how, what, what a deep cut Jesus has given us right now. What he's doing is he's saying, you know what? 
in your imagination, the way you've been thinking about all this stuff, your imagination is not doing too hot. You need to up the ante a little bit. You're using your imagination to think about revenge and name calling and all kinds of creative ways to get back at this person, and you're savoring those things in your heart, saying, man, that's low-level imagination stuff. I'm trying to call you up to something high and beautiful that can bring reconciliation and peace, not just to you and him, but even to this world. This is how my kingdom operates. How much do they say we use of our brain right now? Like 20% or something like that? 10? Man, I wonder how much percent Jesus was using. You think it was 100? Or, or, or was he, because he was born at that time, like he had to, he had to work up like everybody else. Like his body grew up, so he, he was stuck with we were evolutionarily in our brains, and he had to like get it up there. He had to like start unpacking and using more of his brain. And so he could look at us and say, I want you to do that too. Part of the secret here is he's not just using the brain, is he? He's using the heart. Maybe that's why we're still stuck at 10%, because we keep just trying to use this. I think our imagination needs this right here. So, I called my friend Robin yesterday. You guys know Robin? He's sitting over there. I called him, I said, man, I'm really struggling right now because of a situation with some family members of mine, and this passage is just really difficult for me right now uh, because of, of this scenario, and I told him about the scenario, and I said, I just need help. I just don't know what to do. I've ran it through my mind. Becky and I have talked about it. I've prayed about it, but I don't know what to do still. And we talked, and it was exactly what I needed. I needed help from another brother. So when you think about these passages, what we often do in the American church is say, all right, now you get out there and reconcile. You go on and do your thing. Everybody goes out and does nothing because they're scared. And they're like, I don't know how to do that by myself. Don't do it by yourself. Jesus isn't talking to individuals right now. He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the body of believers. And so when you think about this, and you think about how you're gonna apply it because that's the kind of church that Christ City is becoming more and more as people that hear the words of Jesus and then act on them. Who do you need help from? Go to them first. Stop trying to use your measly little 10% and at least bump it up to 20 with another person and get some hearts in there too. My feelings are hurt, I need help. Can you help me heal? Can I tell you about my hurts? Can I tell you why this thing was important to me and why I'm mad at that person? Can you just listen to me for a minute so that I can have the courage to do what Jesus is calling us to do? If you try to do it by yourself, I guess, I don't know, I guess we're just gonna keep going the way we've been going as a, as a um, culture, a Christian culture. I don't mean just Christ City, I just mean there's a whole lot of churches, people go to church every Sunday and they hear a lot of stuff, but they don't do it. 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus says. So many theologians look at this and say, this is impossible, you can't do this. It's gotta be for the millennial reign when Christ comes back. So then why, why, didn't, why don't we just do this? Like my friend said, my Baptist friend said, he said, why don't we just, when we baptize people, we just dunk them and just hold them under. So they can just wake up in eternity. Jesus died for your sins, wrapped up, end of story. We ain't got nothing else to do here. No. Jesus says in this Sermon on the Mount, he tells us to be perfect. And he ain't joking. Perfect meaning complete. How do we be complete? The body of Christ, baby. All working together. Leaning on each other. Where two or three are gathered, Christ is among them. And so he gives us this message of reconciliation. Not for you to go figure it out with your little 10% you got up there, but with the body of Christ. Let us be reconciled to one another and to the world. Let us be a light. Let us no longer fill our mouths with raka and fools, but let us see the image of God in each and every person. And that be the first thing that we remind ourselves of when we are angry. Let us see anger as an opportunity for vulnerability and for comfort for those who need it. And be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. That like the psalmist said, that it is a, a lamp, a, a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. I said that wrong, but you know, you know what I mean. And God, I, I pray that we would have the courage to walk this out, that, that you would expand our imaginations of what's possible in this world, that we would no longer simply be satisfied with the same old types of talk about how things are, about who this or that person is or how that idea forms who that person is to us, but that we would see this world as image bearers of you, that you send the rain on the just and the unjust alike. And sometimes it's just a matter of how many days it is, whether that's the same person or not. So God, I pray that you give us courage first to be vulnerable with each other and then with this world that we would be able to see your kingdom made manifest in our lives, in our day, in our generation. In Jesus' name, amen.